Well, our reading is Romans. We're going to read into chapter 12, but I'm going to start back in chapter 11. So I'm starting the reading this evening in Romans chapter 11 and verse 33. And we'll read these last few verses of doxology from Romans chapter 11. So Romans 11 and uh, starting to read at verse 33. Let's hear the word of God. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Thank God for the reading of his word. Well, this evening, I'd like to take you back to Romans and chapter 12. And the verses that we are going to concentrate on this evening are verses 9 and 10. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above 
yourselves. Well, the Apostle Paul in this chapter is explaining the implications of the gospel to our daily living. Because God has been so merciful to us in saving us, because God has shown such great love for us in sending his Son to be our Saviour on the Calvary's cross, because our God has welcomed us into his family, adopted us as his children, because of all of this great mercy towards us. Therefore, how should we live? Well, in view of God's mercy to us in saving us, and because we've had our eternal salvation secured for us, we've got peace and forgiveness uh, because we know the Lord Jesus. Uh, and we've been brought into fellowship with this God in Christ. And we know him as Father, and we know the Lord Jesus as our elder brother. We're accepted in the beloved. We have responsibilities. This is truly a great thing, isn't it, when you begin to think of all that God has done for us. What it actually means to know Jesus as your saviour. What responding to the gospel actually results in in our lives. The great transformation of life, it brings responsibilities. We have to live in the light of what God has done for us. That's why the chapter begins with the word, therefore, because of all that God has done for us, because of the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how should we live? Well, we are to be totally transformed. That's what we're told there. Uh, we are to be totally transformed by the renewing of our mind. Verse 2. This is how we are to live. We are to offer our whole self, every part of our body, to God. We are to serve him completely in all that we do. And that we are to refuse to continue to think and behave in the way that everybody else does, the world does, the world that doesn't know God. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, of course, that means that every part of our life is going to be affected. There's not, not a single part of your life uh, that will be unaffected by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once you become a Christian, everything changes Everything is different. And we ourselves need to be different from the world around us. It's completely false to think that in order to save the world, we need to be like the world. That's certainly not, not true. We are not to win the world by trying to be like the world. We are to be a contrast to the world around us. And we have a duty to do this. And that's what Romans chapter 12 is all about. It is about Christian Duty. Now, duty might seem a rather strange word to use for the Christian life. We like to think of the Christian life in terms of, of a, a response of, of love and a voluntary thing. We like to think of the Christian life as simply a relationship with God. But actually, the Bible throughout speaks to us about obedience. And uh, obedience is about doing our duty. It's not really a word that is much used in the 21st century, is it? Um, the royal family uh, can seem to be an anachronism uh, because the queen has lived her life throughout since she came to the throne uh, according to duty. She has always put duty above her personal desires and her personal comfort. And 
and sometimes she's even put duty above her family. And these things cannot be easy. But she has recognized the fact that she is in a position. She's not just a private individual. She's not just someone who's been given great responsibilities. She is in a particular role. And that role requires this strong sense of duty. Uh, and that is, is where she is coming from. And in this, she is certainly acting uh, as a Christian. And she certainly professes that, uh, that faith in the Lord Jesus. And that's really what Romans 12 is about. It's about all of us and the duty that each one of us has in our Christian lives. So what is our duty as Christians? Well, Romans 12 tells us. Verses 3 to 8 tell us that we have a duty towards the church. The church is not simply here for our convenience. The church is not simply here so that we can come along occasionally and worship God. The church is much, much more than that. It is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are part of this body. And we each have a vital function within the body of Christ, the church. So immediately these verses elevate the church to a very high level. We don't just come to church. We are the church, and we must behave together as the church. That's verses 3 to 8. And then we also have a duty towards one another within the church. And that's what verses 9 to 13 are about. And we're going to begin to think about those this evening. The duty that we have towards one another in the church, towards our fellow Christians within whichever local church we belong then in verses 14 to 21, we'll discover that we have duties towards those outside the church. And then going on into chapter 13, we will discover that we have duties towards the governing authority. And that duty needn't be a chore. In fact, if we understand this chapter correctly, our duty as Christians can end up being a great delight. It can end up being the most fulfilling and wonderful thing in, in the world. It's challenging, of course it is, but it can be a duty that becomes a great delight. So let's begin this evening then to look at these verses 9 to, thir- 9 to, to 13. We'll only, only look at the first two this evening, verses 9 and 10, and begin to see what is our duty towards one another within the church. And what do we discover? Well, we're not surprised, are we? We're not surprised to see that the first word is love. We're not surprised that the Apostle Paul begins there. In fact, we would expect that, wouldn't he? Wouldn't we? We would expect him to say, well, the highest and greatest thing that we must do for one another is to love one another. In fact, we find this throughout the New Testament. Love always comes First, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then all the other fruit of the Spirit. And then we also discover in Corinthians, when Paul has been speaking about the gifts that exist within the local church, all the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
we discover that as soon as he's finished talking about all the gifts of the Spirit and how we are to use them together within the church as the body of Christ, as soon as he's finished, he goes straight into chapter 13 and says, I'm going to show you the most excellent way. In fact, he's even stronger than that, isn't he? He says, look, I might have the most wonderful gifts in the world. I might be exceptional in my abilities and my God-given gifts within the church. But if I don't have love, then I'm just a noise. I'm just a racket. I'm just empty sound, like a gong going off. I'm useless, really, because love has to be the oil that keeps the mechanism going. All of these gifts that Paul has mentioned in Romans 12, you see, each one of them is going to be totally useless within the church and even harmful if they're not accompanied by love. And that's why as soon as Paul finishes talking about the gifts in Romans 12, verses 3 to 8, immediately he speaks about love. We're familiar, aren't we, that there are four different Greek words for love. We in our language do have lots of different words that sort of mean love, but we tend to use the word love to mean anything and everything, whereas the Greeks were very precise. We're indebted to C.S. Lewis, aren't we, for his book, The Four Loves. And in in his book, C.S. Lewis takes each one of these Greek words for love and explains and applies them as, as only he is able to do. Today, I think the word love is overused but undervalued. We love everything, don't we? We say, oh, I love this, I love that, I love the other. We love everything from food to pets to cars to films to people and even to God himself. But what do we mean by love? We do need to know that, and we do need to be clear about it. C.S. Lewis published his book, The Four Loves, in 1960. Interesting, isn't it? He, he, he published that book in 1960, just as the decade of free love was beginning. And we look back on that decade now, those of us who can, and we say, well, was it really love? And, and what sort of love resulted? And what has been the legacy of that huge change that happened within what probably is still the greatest period of change within the 20th century, those 10 years from 1960 to 1969. And Lewis, at the beginning of that decade, produced this book, The Four Loves. It was based on a series of radio talks that he'd done prior to that. What are those four loves? We find them in the Bible, except for one. One is described, but not not used. So first of all, we have a word that we would probably translate affection. Affection. And that is the Greek word storge. And then we have a, a word that we would translate friendship. Again, the Greek word philio, philia. And then we've got romantic love, which we're... Uh, we're aware of because of the Greek word eros, the statue and so on, and it's used quite a lot, isn't it? But then finally, the fourth word for love, I think the best we can do is to actually go back almost to the authorised version. It's not good, 
but use the word charity because it's the word agape. So those are the four Greek words for love. Affection, friendship, romantic love, and charity. We find all of those words in the New Testament except for eros, but we do have that described for us in various places like 1 Corinthians and chapter 7. And of course, you go back to the Old Testament and we find it most beautifully portrayed, the romantic love, in the Song of Solomon. So that it's not absent from the Bible, even though the word is. Now, you may be surprised to hear that you have heard three of those words in our two verses tonight. Love, there it is in verse 9, must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted, there's another word, to one another in brotherly love. And there's a third word, honour one another above yourselves. So three of those words for love are found in those two verses. But the first word in verse 9 is that greatest of all words, charity, agape. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, Paul says that we are to love without hypocrisy. And we're to love with this type of love, this agape love. What is it? What did the old authorised version mean by charity? We mean something completely different today by charity. By charity today, we immediately think of giving things to people because they're in need. Now, I understand why they might have used that word, but that's, that is just a tiny, tiny fraction of what it really means. What does it mean, this agape love, this love? Well, it is the unconditional love of the Father given to us through the Son. That's what agape, that's what this great word love means. The unconditional, loving because you want to love. Why did the Father love us? Not because there was anything lovely in us to love, but simply because he determined that he would love us. This sort of love will result in much sorrow and pain, because it did for Jesus, didn't it? The Lord Jesus loved us so much he came into the world. But what did that result in for him? Well, much pain during his life, even as he was loving his disciples. They were causing him all sorts of pain. And then, of course, the pain and suffering of the cross. He went there because he loved us with this sort of love. It is the highest and the greatest sort of love. This sort of love means that we will go to the furthest extremes to love those who are broken and those who are needy, to love those who are demanding, to love those who are unlovely. It will mean that we do this for no reward, and for no ulterior motive other than their good. You see how it's a, a selfless love. It is a love that is concerned about the needs of the other person rather than getting any sort of honour for ourselves. And it's a sacrificial love to the highest degree. And all other loves are simply a preparation for this greatest of all loves. 
Now what the apostle says here in Romans 12:9 is that this love must be sincere. To pretend that you have this love is to be hypocritical. Is to be like Judas. Judas pretended that he loved Jesus because in the garden of Gethsemane he went up to the savior and he kissed him. And that was an act of love, wasn't it? But it wasn't love at all. It was a pretense and a deceit. It was a hypocrisy. He only meant Jesus harm and not good by that love. Jesus said, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Are you using this sign of love actually for an action of betrayal and of hate? And Jesus knows what is in every one of our hearts. You may be able to fool other people, but you can't fool him. You're exposed before the Son of God who sees your heart. So let's not pretend to love God if we don't. Let's not pretend this sort of love, this selfless, sacrificial love. Now, we don't love as we ought to, none of us. And there's a, there's a question of degree, of course, in all of these loves. And we're not saying that everyone will love to the uttermost, as Jesus did. But there needs to be this love between us. So what does that mean then? Well, the apostle goes on to describe in these verses what it really means to love one another within the church. So let's have a look and see what he says. First of all, love means hating what is evil. Immediately, we have a contrast, don't we? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. There can be no love without hate. These are very strong emotions, aren't they? But they do go together. If you love, then you will also hate. Anything that is evil must be shunned and must be kept far from us. To love God and to love Christ means that we're going to hate anything that is offensive to God. We must hate everything that is evil. We must hate sin when we discover it in ourselves. We, mean, we need to hate sin because it is offensive to God. It has its origins in the devil, who is the great enemy of God. So loving God is going to mean that we hate anything and everything that is evil. We mustn't harbour evil in our hearts. We mustn't relish it. We mustn't dwell on it. You know yourself that this, this happens to us quite naturally, really, when we see something or hear something that is exceptionally wicked. We hear on the news that, that someone has been murdered, someone has been taken from the streets, and someone has been murdered brutally, and their body has been discovered in a, in a wood somewhere miles away. And there is quite rightly an absolute hatred of that act of wickedness and of evil. Why do we hate things like that? It's because we love. If you don't love, then you won't hate either. But we love life and we value life and we consider it to be precious. And we see a life that's been snatched and taken. And there is a right and proper hatred of of that evil, 
and even of those who commit that evil. We must hate all that is evil. And we desire that those who commit evil like that are brought to justice, but also that they're brought to repentance. Because we do know, don't we, that there is always that possibility of forgiveness of even the most hateful of sins, although justice must be done. So we are to hate that which is evil. We mustn't relish it. We mustn't dwell on it. We mustn't repeat it to others. You know, we hear something that is wrong and bad, and and there is that temptation, isn't there, to spread that and to gossip it around. And do you know, have you heard? No, no, no. You must hate it enough not to do that, not to spread it around. And uh, we mustn't love what led our Saviour to Calvary's cross, must we? He died for sin, so we must hate that sin when we find it in ourselves and we find it in others too. The word for hate is only used in this one particular place in the New Testament. It's a very, very strong word. It's quite rightly translated in some versions, abhor. The ESV, English Standard Version, says, abhor what is evil. Very strong word for a real deep hatred. If you're going to love much, you're also going to hate much as well. There will be these extremes of emotion. An unfeeling person won't love and they won't really hate either. But as Christians, we are called to love greatly, but also to hate greatly too. Hate what is evil. But then, and of course, within the context of the, of the church, it means that we are to hate anything that will come into the church to spoil the church. We must keep sin far from the church and we must hate it. And then we go on and we discover that love means not only hating what is evil, but it means clinging to what is good. Love means clinging to what is good. Uh, Hate what is evil, verse 9, cling to what is good. Love doesn't only mean that you will reject evil, it also means that you're going to cling to what is good. Now this word cling, again, the apostle uses his words carefully. There's no mistakes in the Bible. There are no mistaken words. There are no thoughtless words either. Every single word in the scriptures is chosen carefully, guided by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God. This word cling is a word that means to glue together. When you glue something together, it clings, it sticks together. It's a word that means unite and firmly join. It's a word that's used by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 19 when he's talking about marriage. For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. A gluing together, a uniting, a firmly joining together. Again, you know what God has joined together? Let not man separate. This gluing together, this unity that there is in the marriage bond. But another lovely use of the word, I I love it particularly, is Acts chapter 8 and verse 29. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 29, the Holy Spirit is speaking to Philip. And the Holy Spirit tells him to go down to the desert road and to find a chariot there and stay near that chariot. And that's the same word that's used, stay near the chariot. Stick closely to that chariot. And we imagine Philip running to that chariot and sticking close to it, running alongside it until it stopped, and then staying with it all the time. Stay near that chariot. So we are to stay very near.
to the things that are good. We are to stick closely to whatever is good. We are to identify with what is good according to God's definitions. So we're to stay around good people. Again, that's an application to the church, isn't it? The church is made up of those who were bad and know themselves to be bad in their hearts, but are good. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. And so we are to stay within the church, near to good people. Again, we have that description, don't we, of Christians in the book of Acts. He was a good man, a good woman. And we need to be those good men and women. Not perfect, but good. And then we're to cling to such people, stay around people who are good. It also means that the things that we think about should be the good things. The things that we read should be good things to read. The things that we watch on films and on the television, they should be good things. They should be morally good. They should be upright. They should be good for us. And whoever we associate with should be good. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. If you're a Christian, you need to be very careful who you mix with. The company that you keep will affect the way you think and the way you behave. Christians who are young people need to be particularly careful with this. Make friends of God's people. Be around God's people. You won't always be able to, of course. You've got to mix with the world. You've got to work in the world. You've got to live in the world. To a certain extent, you need to have certain friendships, but they need to be very careful and carefully managed. Your friends need to be the people of God. The people that you cling to need to be God's people, good people, because love means clinging to what is good. And then we move on and we discover that love means being devoted to one another. Love means being devoted to one another. Verse 10, be devoted to one another. It's here that we find the second word for love. And it is this word that we could translate affection. Affection. The Greek word storge. Affection is a family word. Quite appropriate, isn't it, that we should think about this on what people call Mother's Day. Because it's a family word for love. It is a sort of love that a mother has for her children and that children have for their mother, and that family members have for one another, brothers and sisters and parents and children, the sort of love and affection that is shown within a family. In the King James, New King James Version, we have it written like this, be kindly affectionate to one another. I think that's a very good translation. Be kindly affectionate to one another. Um, the NIV, be devoted to one another. What is this affection then? Well, again, let uh, C.S. Lewis define it for us. He describes it like this beautiful way. He says, affection almost slinks or seeps through our lives. It lives with humble, undress, private things, soft slippers, old clothes, old jokes, the thump of a sleepy dog's tail on the kitchen floor, the sound of a sewing machine. 
It is familiarity with people in your family, your college. It is the affection you have for the people who are always around you. That's what affection is. It's that sort of everyday, casual but relaxing sort of love where you can be yourself and you just feel comfortable with those around you. A humble sort of love that is very ordinary and yet incredibly precious. That's the sort of affectionate love that we should have for one another within the church, a devotion to one another, a family affection, a familiarity with one another. It's quite a challenge, isn't it, really? Is that how we view other people, the other brothers and sisters in the church? Do we feel that sense of family, uh, that we are in one another's lives, in a sense, in a very ordinary, natural sort of way? Are we devoted to one another? There needs to be this affection. If we're ever going to rise to the heights of the agape love, the charity, the love of God, the God-like love, then there has to be this lower level of affection for one another. So love means being devoted to one another. And then finally in these verses, love means outdoing one another in honour. Outdoing one another in honour. Love means hating what is evil. Love means clinging to what is good. Love means being devoted to one another. But love also means trying to outdo one another in honour. The final statement is strange, isn't it? Honour one another above yourselves. The final statement includes two ideas, that of honouring one another and that of showing brotherly love or this Third word for love, filio, friendship. So uh, be devoted to one another. In brotherly love, we, we could say in brotherly love, honour one another above yourselves. I think that would be a more natural way of understanding this. The brotherly love that you have means that you're going to try and outdo one another in showing honour to one another, in, in thinking of one another as, as better than ourselves. Uh, in that sense, where verse 3, we're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but we ought to have a very high view of one another. We ought to be able to honour one another. You know, in, in the church, we mustn't drag one another down. It's so easy, isn't it, to, to, to drag people's character down and to, to talk of all the bad things rather than saying, well, you know, there, there's, there's that wonderful thing about that brother and sister and, and to, to highlight perhaps the gifts and, and the positive qualities. It's very easy to drag someone down, isn't it? But we're not to do that. We're to honour one another above ourselves. And we're to do it as part of the brotherly love, the friendship, I think. Uh, you know, brotherly love, it, it, it sounds very masculine, doesn't it? Brotherly, sisterly love. I think probably a better word is friendship. It's a sort of friend, deep friendship love. What is this love? Well, this is the love that is often dismissed by the world. It's often thought, you see, in the world that either you've got to have something that is to do with romantic love 
Or you've got to have this affectionate love, family love. But this idea of a deep friendship that is not romantic and it's not family. It's different. It's a, it's a friendship love. Now that is the love that often gets neglected by the world, almost dismissed by the world. Now to C.S. Lewis, he says this is one of the greatest forms of love. He says, to the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. I think he's right. I think this taking time to really develop close friendships, I think it is ignored, and the reason it's ignored, because it is time-consuming. It's going to take you a lot of time to really develop a close friendship with somebody. And also, it's probably the least rewarding because you don't really get an awful lot out of friendship. They can be quite demanding at times, really. And yet they are rewarding in their own way. Sometimes we neglect it because we can quite happily live without it. If we've got a romantic love or we've got a family love, we can invest all of our time into that. And we don't really need friends. We don't really need this friendship love. But actually, the Bible places it quite high, doesn't it? The number of times the Bible mentions brotherly love. That's his friendship love, isn't it? Well, perhaps, as Lewis says, perhaps few value it because few experience it. But he suggests that friendship is the closest type of love to heaven. Think about that. What is it going to be like in heaven? First of all, there's no romantic love in heaven. Sorry to disappoint you, but there's no romantic love in heaven. Marriage is for this life, and it is vitally important for family life and for our well-being and for many, many people. That is what God has as a gift for them. But there is no marriage in heaven. They don't give and take him. They're like the angels of heaven. Marriage is for this world. There's no romantic love in heaven. And there's no family love in heaven either. Because family is for here. Families are vitally important. Vitally important for the well-being of society and our personal well-being. Families are really important. But there's no families in heaven. That's for this world. But in heaven, there is going to be friendship. There is going to be brotherly love. In a sense, it's going to be one great family, the family of God. There is going to be the love of God for us. Now, if that's right, then surely this friendship, this brotherly love, is the closest type of love to heaven, where we are all going to be, in, in Lewis's words, intertwined in our relationships. Friendship, he says, must be about something even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Friendship must be about something. Your friendship's got to be built on something. You are not going to make as a friend someone who has no interests in common with you. There's no point of contact, is there? 
So you've got to make a friend of someone who's got an interest like yours, as Lewis says, even if it's just dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing in common can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travellers. What about the church? We do have something, don't we? We have the Lord. We have our salvation. We know the love of God, the word of God. We have something in common with every other Christian on the face of this earth. We all love the same saviour and he loves us. It is this that makes it so easy for Christians to have this friendship, this love for one another, this brotherly love, because we've already got something in common and we're always going somewhere. We're all on our way to glory. So with those things in common, there is everything necessary for a deep friendship amongst God's people. So of all people in the world, we should be kindly affectionate to one another in brotherly love. We all have a long way to go in developing these loves. They require time and effort and patience and determination. I was reading in um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer this afternoon. He made a very important point. He says, in order to love someone, you've got to listen to them. We say we love God, and love of God begins with us listening to God. He says, we're very quick to talk to give our opinions, to make our decisions. But he says, love and friendship begin with us spending that time of listening to one another. Well, it it requires patience and determination. Jesus is the greatest example there, isn't he? He was affectionate, friendly, and above all, self-sacrificing. His genuine, unhypocritical love for us. We've got to be like him. And there is a wonderful unexpected consequence if we develop this sort of love within the church. Jesus says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Don't we want everybody to know that we're disciples of Christ? Don't we want them to become disciples too? Well, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love one another. Well, may God bless his word to our hearts. We conclude with a lovely hymn, number 711. 711. John Newton wrote this hymn. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Saviour's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. Let us love the Lord who bought us, pitied us when enemies, called us by his grace and taught us, gave us ears and gave us eyes. He has washed us with his blood. He presents our souls to God. Let us sing, though fierce temptations threaten hard to bear us down. For the Lord, our strong salvation, holds in view the conqueror's crown. He who washed us with his blood soon will bring us home to God. Let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. 
Let us praise and join the chorus of the saints enthroned on high. Here they trusted him before us. Now their praises fill the sky. You have washed us with your blood. You are worthy, Lamb of God. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we thank and praise you this night for the great love that you have shown towards us. Thank you that you loved us before we ever loved you. Thank you that you set your love upon us and chose us to be your very own. Thank you that the Lord Jesus has shown the greatest love in going to Calvary's cross for us. Help us that we might love one another as you have loved us. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.